Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Expeditions on the Engaging Faith Podcast. I just want to welcome you guys to another edition. I'm your host, Charles Frame, and uh, this week we're jumping right into uh, Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first five verses of Revelation chapter 5, and our focus is really on this question of, man, what is this seven-sealed scroll that is being held in the right hand of God? And we want to look at that, and we want to look at the different positions uh, that uh, these these historicists, preterists, futurist and idealist take and and looking at and interpreting what this scroll is so without further ado let's jump right in all right so we're we're in uh man we're in chapter five we're flying <laughs> so we're on revelation chapter five go ahead rick are you are you ready we're, we're just going to look at the first five verses and we're going to talk about this scroll go ahead then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seals with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Amen. All right, so we've got this scene, and this is, this is clearly a very important scene, right? We've talked about the throne room. We've talked about God. We've talked about this scene that we've seen over and over in a, in a lot of places throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, uh, etc. And so, man, this is... Something very powerful, very meaningful, right, is obviously about to take place. And the question that we have is, what does it all mean? You know, uh, and, and how are we supposed to view it? Because there's this blessing, obviously, when we're reading Revelation and we're tackling it and we uh, are, are just talking about what these things are and, and giving it to God and looking at our lives, looking at the world. There's this blessing that God has for us. But yet, there's a, man, there's just this amazing amazing imagery and these amazing events that are being described and and they're they're building on one another uh, and when I say that I mean from not only in Revelation we have this build-up but we also have this recapitulation remember that when we start looking at the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and, and those types of things we have these similar events that that we're looking at uh, and that's part of the question we want to answer. Some people see it as sequential. Others say, no, it's not sequential. It's the same events from different perspectives uh, that we're, we're looking at. So we're trying to discover, well, what is that? And in the meantime, we have these very specific things God is wanting us to see and to know. And, and how does that impact us today? And some of the answers that we discover, I think, are very impactful to us in the here and now, right now, and understanding our relationship with Christ, with God the Father, and, and how it impacts the way that we live today and in our moment and how we, we move forward into the future. And if that weren't true, there wouldn't be so many, you know, I, I don't like the word argument, but there wouldn't be so, so much just, you know, spirited discussion and dialogue among scholars and theologians about what this stuff means. Because after all, you know, depending on the position you hold, it can affect the way that you, you 
you live, right? I mean, if you're going to be raptured out of here at the beginning and you're not going to go through the tribulation, well, this is just a great, man, this is an exciting story and, and narrative to see the future and, and go, thank God I'm not going to be here through that. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's how it impacts you. And then you're just really excited about those events. And you might even be, uh, in some sense, man, bring it. So you're looking for all the possibilities of, of all the horrible things that are coming to point to it because you know, man, I'm gone. The rapture's coming. It's really close. So, I mean, it's going to impact the way you live. Versus if you think, well, wait a minute, uh, I may be going through this stuff. That, that starts to kind of hit home in a different way, right? I mean, if I'm going to experience these things, then this is going to be some horrifying cataclysmic events that, that are so powerful that, that men are going to wish that the mountains would fall down on them and kill them, but they can't die, you know? Uh, so, so now all of a sudden you got to kind of begin to say, you know, if you were, uh, if you were faced with these things, how are you going to react? Right? I mean, if all of a sudden you're living in a world that, that is potentially, and I say potentially because one group, uh, think that the world is supposed to just get more Christianized. You know, so the 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 uh, you know that is the kingdom of God expands, more and more people get saved, and peace comes on the earth. So, oh yeah, we'll talk about that when we look at these different positions when we get to chapter twenty on the millennial reign. Because remember, there's two questions that in that there's two things that really kind of lay out how you and how you view the book of Revelation, whether or not you're fully employed in that process of pursuing it or not, one is what are the filters you have? So what, what interpretive lane have you found yourself kind of holding to, right? That's one of them. And then the second is this whole question of the millennium. You know, are you pre, post, or are you amillennial? In other words, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That, that we hit when we get to chapter 20 and kind of start leading into that in chapter 19. So, you know, where you fall in those categories kind of determine uh, where you're at. And these are the questions we're looking at. So what is this scroll? Why is it important to us to, to, to see it? You know, what is it? And have we seen it before? Right? Remembering, we want to go back to Scripture first and foremost to interpret Scripture. So do we see this scroll concept in, in Scripture? And in what context? And what does it look like? And how should that inform how we view the scroll that we see in Revelation? So that's the question that we're looking at here. Well, we know that the contents, whatever this scroll is, it says that this scroll is written on both sides of the, of, of the document, right? It's on the front side, and there's writing completely on the back side, and then it's got seven seals on it. Well, not just anybody can open it. What, what did it say? What did this angel declare? No, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. <laughs> Man, 
No, no one, you know, and it's not just, it's got to be somebody strong enough, right, to open it, to break the seals. It's not that. It's not, it's got to be somebody smart enough to figure out the puzzle on how to get this thing open so we can discover the event. That's not what it's looking for. It's, this angel is declared, it has to be one worthy. This document is so important. What's in this scroll is so important to God. It's in his right hand, right? And, and the right hand of God is a symbol of his what? Man, his authority. This is his authority and his power. And where does Jesus sit on the throne? He's seated at the right hand of the Father until what? Until it's all, to all his enemies, to everything is just put under his feet and, and it, it all is his, Right? So he's at the right hand of the Father. And in, in the authority and the power of God, in his right hand, he has this scroll that only one who is worthy can open. And what do they do? They look everywhere. Man, that should not be lost on us. There is no one. There is no one in heaven. There is no one on the earth. Right? And there is no one under the earth. So this is telling you that there's, there's, no, there's no being in heaven. There's no spiritual being. There's no living person who's on the earth itself. And there is no dead human being or no beings. When you go back to the supernatural and you have, you have you know, the, the demons and all of these things, there is no being at all that is worthy to open this scroll and loose its seals. None whatsoever. And, and clearly in that moment, John, what does he do? He starts to cry. That's some powerful imagery that we can't just read over. Because we like to jump to the next verse, right? And we're going to deal with that later, next week. This is going to take three parts, really. <laughs> Maybe four for us to get past this group of passages. Okay? This really impacted him. In, in a powerful way, though, for him to cry about it, you know, it was, it was like a really moving moment that brings a guy to tears, you know. And it, he wasn't just crying; he was weeping, you know, like, like Christ wept in the garden. Mm. You know? No hope. No hope. Mm -hmm. And isn't that, isn't that strange? I mean, where is he? Well, but but isn't that that's interesting, right? We're about to jump to. So is Jesus is the Lamb immediately visible to him? Doesn't sound like it. Doesn't sound like it, does it? As a matter of fact, I mean, is it possible that he's even there yet? Well, we're going to deal with this event with the rider on the clouds, aren't we? We're going to see this later. We're going to see the rider who's coming in on the clouds. And we've talked about this, too, in the supernatural discussion, right? Now, there's also this interesting statement when Mary, right, when she goes to the tomb and she's... And, and, and 
she recognizes, you know, Jesus isn't there and all that good kind of stuff. And then she's, she's going to go and she recognizes him. And she, what's, what does she want to do? Do you guys remember? She wants to touch him. Right? But, but yeah, I mean, she's like, I, I'm going to come and I, I just and follow your feet and touch you and all of that. And what does Jesus say? He says what? He, he says, don't, don't touch me. And, and, but he, and he tells her why. And he says, because I haven't been glorified. Yeah. Now that's interesting, right? So, I mean, and, and there's no one on earth. There's no one below the earth. And there's no one in heaven worthy to open the scroll. So am I telling you, and this is something I want you to realize, you know, the whole goal of all of this is to make these connections and to say, look, here, here are things we want to think about. I'm not trying to tell you at all what all this means. That's not what I'm trying to do. I don't, I'm trying to discover all that myself, right? But what's, what I am trying to do is make you realize, wow, there's a lot of these connecting points that we cannot ignore, that when we read them on the surface, they may seem strange and out of place. And we discovered, when we spent a year talking about the supernatural, right? Man, we had some wow moments discovering some things that, wow, this, by knowing and beginning to understand the super, supernatural, we begin to understand some of these things that seem weird in Scripture, that all of a sudden are not weird, and really have these incredible tie-ins to the events of Scripture and, and, and God's plan and His redemption of, of us as His children and the planet and Eden and all these kinds of things. So it's interesting. I mean, Jesus told her, do not touch me because I have not been glorified yet. I mean, that, that's amazing, guys. So is it possible that this scene connects to that moment in some way? Does, does that help shed light a little bit on what might be happening? Because John clearly does not see the lamb yet. John, looking on this scene, doesn't see him. And on top of that, if he were there in that moment, why would that have been said? All right? We could take that tack. We could say there's no one in heaven, there's no one on earth, and there's no one under the earth worthy to open the seals to open the scroll so why would that have been said we can we can come at that angle and say that would not have been said if, if the lamb was right there right it's also possible that the lamb was there and and that no one was seeing him yet or from john's perspective he's not seeing all this yet and it's making a point and that point is to ultimately point to the only one who is worthy. It also seems to imply something else. Was G and we, we talked a little bit about this several weeks ago from Revelation Scripture. Is Jesus a created being? Mm -mm. Are all the angels in heaven created beings? Yes. Absolutely. Is every human that's on the planet a created being? Absolutely. Is Jesus? No. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus himself, we know, you know, says that he was with the Father, right, when, when God created all of the universe. Jesus says everything's been created by me, for me, and through me, right? So it would imply, too, that, you know what, there is no created being able or worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals. None. Only God himself, who, who took upon himself, right, who was incarnated. Jesus is God. So that's the other thing that these statements imply, and that should just make us really think strongly about what's happening here. So, how, how do these views then, I mean, as we kind of look at this scene and how it's set up for us, and thinking about the throne room and the 24 elders and this mass of beings that are, that are in this room, thinking about this scene and how it's been utilized in the past in Scripture, and thinking about it now, what, what do they say? What do these different interpretive models say? Well, one of the things that we want to do, we all, when we say scroll and seven seals, what, what's in your mind? What's the image you have? What? Go ahead, Beth. Piece of paper. Yeah. The seals. Round up scroll or wound up scroll, right? And, and what? Yeah, so along, along the outer edge, right? <clears throat> Where the, that final edge, you have these wax seals. That's the vision and image that we have, right? And, <clears throat> and those would be in order, right? So, I mean, you got to begin to kind of think about that image. Do you realize, though, that the same word scroll is also translated as book? So, now it's a different image, right? It's also translated as a book, and we've seen this in the Old Testament. Somebody grab Ezekiel chapter 2, verse is it 8, through chapter 3, verse 1. Do I have a taker? That's really not a whole lot. Go ahead, Lynn. You ready? Yeah, and then somebody else go grab Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Okay. You got that, Shannon? Okay, great. Go ahead, Lane. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not, rep excuse me, do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Sorry, the next page here. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the people of Israel. And it's written on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. words, of words. words of what? Lament and mourning and woe. <laughs> the, the, these are words of judgment, right? So, and, and when we get to another part, which we won't get to today, we're going to see this again, okay? So, so you have this book. It's called a scroll. It's written on both sides, and it's full of words of lament and woe, okay? We're going to see another scroll that is similar later. So, Daniel 12.4. Go ahead, Shannon. 
But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. So here's Daniel. We know Daniel ends, right? He's, he's got a book. He's got this message, this you know, events and what have you, that's not for him or, or for the people at any immediate point in time. It's for a point far in the future. And it's sealed up. And it can't be opened. Is this that same book? Is this that same scroll that God has? Is this event the one that Daniel was seeing? All, all absolutely... Uh, important to it. So what does a historicist say? Well, historicists say the scroll represent the purposes. I mean, as a matter of fact, the historicist along with the idealist is really the most generic uh, in, in all of it in terms of what the scroll is. It simply represents the purposes and the designs of God for governments in the church. So, you know, on here it's got some future events. For sure, but it also represents his authority and how he handles the governments and the affairs of men and the church uh, on, on earth until the final days. Now, at first that sounds generic, but that might play an actual important role uh, when you get to a really important point about the preterists. The preterists say, hey, this scroll is a sentence. So they're saying that John has come into this courtroom scene, right? We've, we've talked about this terminology that this is set up like a courtroom type scene. And John has come in and he's seen this scene after whatever events have been taking place. And now what he's seeing is he's seeing the judgment that's being handed down by God. The judgment that is going to be cast upon the nation of Israel and Jerusalem specifically, right? In the, in the temple. And why? Because of their participation and their guilt in the bloodshed of, of the righteous martyrs. Somebody go grab Matthew chapter 23, verse 33 through 36. And remember, part of this, this is helping you realize, wow, people, these are all believers, right? The, everybody that is in these different positions, they're all believers. We're, we're all part of the kingdom of God and these are these different places where there's some meat behind what these positions are so do you ignore them completely because you're so set on one particular point or do you have to consider and look at what these things are who's got Matthew 23 verse 33 through 36 anybody okay. you got it go ahead Jan you snakes you brood of vipers how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so open, so and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. Wow. Man, now, does that sound like that that's for a future generation? Or does that sound like it's for that generation? 
Because this is Jesus, right, talking. That generation, how are you going to escape hell? All of the bloodshed of, of the righteous that's, that, that has happened on earth. Now, that doesn't mean Israel's responsible for every person who's been murdered or killed, no matter where they were on the earth. It's talking about these prophets, and it's talking about those that God has sent to speak to them, to turn them away. And then what do they do? They kill them. And ultimately, they're going to kill who? Jesus. And he's telling them, you're going to pay for this. You're not getting away with it. And not only are you not getting away with it, but it's coming, and it's coming in your generation. So the preterist says, this is being fulfilled, and what you're seeing is the judgment, the scroll being handed to fulfill exactly what has been told to them here. But only one who's worthy. So, so the one who's worthy, and this is your mainline preterist position, okay? Only one who's worthy can cast the first stone. I mean, what did Jesus say, right, to those who wanted to cast the stone and kill the adulterer? without sin. Those without sin. He's writing in the ground, right? Hey, those of you without sin cast the first stone. So there's this principle that exists, right? And they all did what? Man, they walked away. <laughs> they turned and they walked away. So only one worthy, only one without sin, has the authority and is worthy to actually execute this judgment that God has decreed and passed down. And the only one worthy isn't anybody who's created. It's not anybody in heaven. It's not anybody on earth. It's not anybody under the earth. It's only one. It's the Lamb. It's Christ. He's the one who can cast the stone. He's the one who is worthy to execute this judgment. So some believe that these seals are all about, we already know that about preterists, right? That this is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they look, and, and we have this idea in our mind of this scroll and these seven seals, and they say, well, you know, when you open... If I open, if I have a scrolled document, and, I, and this may be just too analytical, I, you know, I don't know, but they, they talk about all this stuff, right? But if, if I open, if I've got a scroll and I open the first seal, am I reading any? Is there anything that I'm able to see or discern? No, you got to bring them all. Right. I mean, I can't even undo the document to read what's in it until I've done what? I've opened all seven seals. <clears throat> So when you think about the idea that these are, that some futurists think this is all sequential, one right after the other, and that you have the seven seals, and each of those is opening because of the way it reads, right? But yet you have, if, so is this a scroll or is this a book? And they get into all these things. So they, they say, hey, what we're actually being introduced to with the seals is this judgment that's being passed down, and we're being introduced to the lead characters. And the judgments aren't going to actually begin really, until the trumpets that you see when we get to chapter 8. But here's probably one of the, besides this, I don't think we can get away from this. To me, the whole events that take place on Jerusalem in AD, from AD 66 to 70, I, to me, you can't ignore. And there are aspects, I believe, of, of Revelation, what have you, that apply to that. That's just me, you know. But this is another really interesting thing that soft preterists 
uh, hard preterist meaning, man, this is all about Jerusalem. Period. End of story. A soft preterist says, no, there are future events yet that are out there. Even some hard preterists see that, okay? Because there's going to be an end of the I mean, there's going to be an end of the world. Time is going to come to an end at some point, right? So it's hard to get around not believing there's, there's events that are yet future. But a soft preterist brings up a, an excellent point, and that is that they see this scroll that it's a testament. And at this test, it's a testament document that God has. And what's really happening here is that he's giving and he's saying, who's worthy to open this testament document? And this testament document is there to support and lay out the new what? The new covenant. covenant. What did Jesus say he was bringing? Well, there, when he when he was here, the kingdom's at hand, and he's making a what? He says he's making a new covenant. Right? A new covenant. And this testament, this document, is the testament handed down by the authority of God of this new covenant that Christ has brought. And that he has redeemed us and sealed us. So, then the question of who's worthy changes, doesn't it? Well, if there's a new covenant, if there's a testament, who mediates? Now this ought to, you know, immediately put a passage of scripture in your mind. Who's worthy to be the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus. Man, what does Jesus say about himself? There is only one mediator between Man and God, right? There's only one. And it's Jesus. And why is he worthy? He's worthy because he's God incarnate and because he's taken upon himself all of what we deserve and he's the only one capable of doing it. And he's the one that all of the universe, all of creation is, is sustained by. It was created by. Only he has that ability. So now that brings in an, an interesting statement about only one who's worthy, and that's Jesus. He's the only one who can mediate the new covenant, and he's the only one who's worthy to cast judgment on Israel because you and I can't judge anybody, can we? So does that kind of change a little bit about possibly what these events are that we're seeing taking place? It can. So then what about the futurist? The futurist says, no, this isn't a testament document. This is a title deed to the planet. Now, that's going like this. And, <laughs> and you should be. And I'm not saying this isn't correct because, hey, they've got some pretty good evidence for that, right? I mean, after all, uh, Adam and Eve blew it, right? Who, who did they give dominion to? Yeah. God, but who was God? Who did God give dominion to? Adam and Eve, right? So, I mean, in the beginning of Genesis, God gave dominion to Adam and Eve. He told them, you know, go, multiply, get out there. 
and, and, and not just stay in the garden. His original plan was, I've given you this entire planet. Get going. And if they hadn't messed all that up, right, I mean, we could make some intelligent leaps forward and just look at, we're a messed up world, and where have we gotten to? Right? I mean, we're going to space. So, I mean, you could almost just let your imagination go. We talked about this in the supernatural. I mean, shoot. If they hadn't messed up and they took dominion over the planet and all these, I mean, who knows what could have been, right? So... So they were given dominion. They messed up, and who did they hand it over to? Who did they forfeit that dominion to? They forfeited it to the enemy, to, to Satan. And God's made it clear. Who, who rules this planet? <laughs> According to who's who's the prince of this planet? Man, it's Satan. It's not you and I. So there's some, there's some legitimacy to what they're saying. But they're saying this scroll, this document, represents a title deed to the earth itself. And why? Well, because we forfeited it. And under Roman law, it required that when you had a will that was going to get passed on to your successor, it had to be sealed with seven seals. Wow. That is interesting, isn't it? So it had to be, and we know it, Vespasian's will, I mean, we, we have it. We know that his will had seven seals. So that went all the way up, you know, to the highest levels under Roman law, that your successor wasn't legitimate, your will wasn't legitimate, unless it had the seven unbroken seals on it, and only the successor could open it. So that, that has some bearing on this scene, doesn't it? So a title deed to the earth itself. And the judgments that are being unleashed in the whole tribulation is all about God bringing upon the usurpers, right? Uh, all of his wrath, taking back the planet. Now, that seems a little weird to me in one sense. I mean, Beth, you, you went squirrely-eyed back there when, when, we, when we said, you know, this title deed to the planet. It, it seems a little squirrely to me because did God ever lose ownership or sovereignty? Wouldn't it kind of like be a sequence of events? To? Well, I mean, we think of it like opening them all up, but if you were to actually go to trial or something, there's a sequence you go from one, one court to the next to the next. Right, sure, sure. So it could actually go like that. These are actually a sequence of events that will take place when... It, it could, it could. You know, in futurism, they definitely see it in that way. It's a sequence of events that is ultimately, it's not that it's not going from court to court. It's really the judgment has been passed, but now the execution of that judgment to get to the final outcome is a series of events. So right in line with what you're talking about. So they see it that way. They see that there's this now, as he's opening these seals, this is the process of the judgments being passed so that God can take back. Because at the end, what happens? Right? Man, it's all done. They're vanquished. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. The new Jerusalem comes down. And you're, you're at the final, you know, redemption of all of God's creation. Bringing it back to what, it, what his intentions, and I, I don't like that word necessarily, you know, 
for God, but what it was from the very beginning when, when man was set in, in the garden with the exception that it's all perfected now, right? Does that make sense to all of you guys? I mean, do you, do you see that? I'm asking this for a reason. It's not a right or wrong answer, so don't. Go ahead, Nolene. Well, in that uh, new religion called the Urantia, that's what they talk about is planets that we have to travel from one to the other to the other to the other. And we grow on each one of these planets until we can get to God. So that puts that, to me, under that, well, here's another planet. Meaning, not that you believe that, meaning No, they, I'm but, just yeah. saying that's what they believe. Well, Mormons believe, believe a very similar thing, yes. Okay. Yeah. So when you say, well, now we've got this new earth and it's created, this is going to be another one that you have to go and be on for 30, 40, 50, 60 years no, no, to no. move to the next, you know, and I'll go, no. No, absolutely not. No. God, it's, it's, it's the perfected creation now. It's all been redeemed and it's said. And we have a new heaven and a new earth. There's no, there's no sin. There's no evil. There's none of that. Well, we're we're with God, okay. So here's another part of what they they say: when when property's forfeited under Jewish law, okay, you can redeem forfeited real estate or real estate. Now the year the the the, the years of jubilee. Which, wow, wouldn't this be cool if this happened here in, in America, right? You own land, and I sell it, right, to, to you, and 50 years later, guess what? It comes back to me. It comes back to my family. Okay? That, that's what the Jubilee is. But if I had forfeited, if I couldn't pay for the land or I had to sell it, and I needed to redeem that land back, under Jewish law, somebody go grab Leviticus 25.25 and somebody grab 1 Peter 1.18-19. says, If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. His nearest relative is to come and redeem it for him. Right? And so when that relative comes, that redemption has a purchase price. And he has to come to the new owner and he has to, give the, he has to tell him, I'm redeeming this property. And here's the purchase price. And now that property comes back. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Anybody? Okay. Go ahead, Shannon. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we have this kinsman-redeemer language that, that is through scripture too right that jesus is our kinsman he says man i no longer call you slaves but i call you my friend and as we continue on we're his family <coughs> he's our he's our kinsman redeemer so under the jewish law that property could be redeemed that title deed would be handed over so all of these they say supports the concept that it's a title deed and god's taking back the planet some of those things I think are, are pretty good and interesting. My bigger problem is, you know, I don't think God ever lost ownership of his creation ever. You I, don't, know? I don't think he lost ownership either. I think he just allowed Satan as a result of the fall.
follow man to go ahead and, and have dominion. But right. He never gave up ownership. Exactly. So to me, there's no, I mean, that would imply that, hey, if I don't get this title, you know, I, I don't get my planet back. And, and I, I don't think that's correct. So to me, it says, well, some of these other positions, this testament becomes a lot more intriguing discussion because of the reasons that we talked about, and there's many others. But I've got to go back and I've got to think of something. And that, that something is, was Jesus a Roman? No. He wasn't, was he? He's from the tribe of Judah. Man, he's Hebrew. He's, Isra he's an Israelite. So, yes, Rome was the, the dominant power. We get all that. Yes, there were laws and all that. But did the Hebrew people forget their laws and their lifestyle and their culture? No. As a matter of fact, they're the only ones in history, even to this day, that have never lost who they are their culture and all of that, and been totally absorbed into other cultures, although theirs was all taken away from them, right? So this Hebrew mindset is absolutely more important to what's taking place here than just what the Romans required in the last will and testament. <laughs> so that begs a question. What about the Hebrew betrothal process, the getting married? Do we see these elements existing in the process of engagement and ultimately marriage? Now, most people aren't ever going to think about that. But yet, we know there's a marriage supper of the Lamb <laughs> in this whole revelation. So, we need to look at this. So, that's what we're going to do starting next week. Actually, we're going to look at probably one other thing, and then we're going to start looking at this. And I think you might have some real eye-openers about what, what's here. There's, there's a lot more going on, too, no question, right? I mean, we're not killing people in the middle and doing cataclysmic things in the middle of a wedding you know, deal. But we can't ignore this process, especially when you get to the ketubah and all these different things, and the process that happens in this wedding process it's pretty amazing and it has bearing on how we see revelation so lord we just thank you father for who you are and we just pray that you uh, just seal your word in the walls of our heart and bring us into remembrance of it each and every day guide us by your holy spirit help us to sort through all of these uh, different pieces and parts and components and and just help us to begin to understand them and get out of them exactly what you have for each of us Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.